Welcome to City Speak with Max Masudafarkas. Halfway through recording season two, the world as we knew it changed. The coronavirus has been referred to as the invisible enemy, but its effects on our cities have been anything but invisible. Shops closed, streets empty, homes on lockdown. We realized that we could not release the second season of City Speak without addressing the new world we suddenly found ourselves in. So we have decided on a format for this season that will alternate between episodes that look at life in our cities during the coronavirus and episodes recorded before the coronavirus that deal with the perennial themes of our cities, themes which will one day come back into focus once we have overcome this most difficult period. We begin the season with an installment from the first category. Our guest today has always been one of the foremost scholars of the urban world, but he would be the first to admit that there have been few moments when his work has taken on as great an urgency as it does now. Bruce Katz is the co-author of The New Localism, How Cities Can Thrive in the Age of Populism, and he currently serves as the executive director of the NOAC Metro Finance Lab in Philadelphia. His credentials include former vice president of the Brookings Institution, chief of staff to U.S. Housing and Urban Development Secretary Henry Cisneros, and senior counsel for the U.S. Senate Subcommittee on Housing and Urban Affairs. Since the pandemic began, Bruce has been a wellspring of new ideas for how cities can reboot in the aftermath of the virus. Although his outlook on the future is a sober one, he shares with us some of the solutions that he believes can turn a global catastrophe into a local triumph. Season two of City Speak is proudly sponsored by Batoni Architects. Batoni Architects is committed to their mission of improving the built urban environment by offering unique architectural solutions to support their clients' needs. You can explore their projects at batoniarchitects.com. Bruce Katz, welcome to City Speak. Well, thanks for having me. So let's start with a subject that you've written on extensively over the course of the pandemic, uh, and that is small businesses. Uh, one of the factoids that was recited most frequently at the height of the discussions in Washington surrounding the Small Business Administration was, of course, that small businesses are collectively the largest employer in the country. But more fundamentally, you know, small businesses are really what define cities, not only in terms of their local economies, but also just how they feel on the ground. What are some of the big takeaways from the pandemic on how cities and the federal and state governments, too, should be nurturing small businesses? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. And I, I think that's a great question to start off because this crisis in many respects has been a small business crisis on the economic side. Uh, the public health crisis has forced us literally to shut down the economy. And, and we always knew in the abstract that many small businesses, particularly those that are Black-owned or Latino-owned, have very little cash reserves, have very little capital to survive these kind of shocks. So I think what we've discovered through this uh, last couple of months is that our definition of small business is overbroad in the United States. If we just if we went out on the street today in West LA and asked them, hey, what do you think of a what's a small business? They probably would say, oh, that's just a firm or an enterprise with less than five or 10 or 20 employees. But we define small business in the United States as establishments with less than 500 employees. And so when the federal government basically enacted the Paycheck Protection Program, which is 
hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars uh, being provided uh, to help, quote unquote, small businesses uh, with their payrolls. What ended up happening is the large banks primarily served large small businesses. I mean, it's it's almost impossible to call them small businesses. So I think what we're facing right now in many cities is, as you say, one of the great things about cities is not the grand, right? It's not the grand architecture or the grand boulevards. It's the granular. It's it's the neighborhood feel, the authentic locally serving businesses, right? Whether it's in high-income communities or low- and moderate-income communities. This is what we love about cities. And my fear is we're going to lose a lot of those small businesses because we really haven't, until most recently, enacted legislative responses that are fit to purpose and really adapted to the needs, the capital needs of these very micro-enterprises. I will say that at the beginning of this crisis, what began to happen not surprisingly, and this is before the federal government basically enacted the large rescue programs, is that a lot of local relief funds were set up in cities and counties. And, and these relief funds, some are run by the local government, some by public authorities, chambers, philanthropies, immediately became oversubscribed. They just didn't have enough capital to deploy. But what they were able to do was to really target these micro-businesses and provide them with either grants or with very flexible loan terms that, again, were more fit to purpose. What we've been doing is trying to reverse engineer federal policy so that the next round of assistance and relief that we provide for small businesses and business districts, we'll talk about this, understands that these kind of small establishments uh, really do require much more flexible resources that have been provided link to that question of economic recovery uh, in our cities, but also just more broadly, is not only how we will recover, but where the recovery should take place. And in many of your writings on the pandemic, you argue that the paradigm around economic recovery should really be focused on place, and in particular, the downtowns of our cities. In particular, you advocate that there should be a significant redesign of our downtowns and that cities should be actively experimenting with them even as they are still recovering from the crisis. Can you talk a little bit more about this and about why our downtowns are so important to include in the equation? And I would ask, are there any compelling examples you've seen of this? Well, I think central business districts and anchor districts around universities and frankly, many of the commercial corridors and main streets that we have in our cities are, are really critical because they are centers of commerce for sure, but they, they also disproportionately generate tax revenues for cities. And they're really centers of civic life and communal life. And so they have a draw on the psychology of urban residents that's really quite powerful. So I think it's very important as we go forward is to understand, first of all, what's going to be the impact on these places where we congregate and co-locate and concentrate small businesses, because there's going to be a substantial impact. And we're going to wake up at some point when this nightmare is over. And a large number of small businesses will have collapsed and failed. And then we're going to have central business districts or commercial corridors with you know, so-called empty teeth. There's going to be vacant buildings. So I, I think we 
you have to understand first how cities are beginning to respond. There's been a response already. It's primarily been around the streetscape because car traffic in many of our cities has been dramatically reduced. I mean, we're all locked home here. What you're already beginning to see are streets closed off to vehicular traffic and opened up to pedestrians and, and cyclists. And that's going to be uh, become a bit of a norm. Some of this will become permanent. You're also seeing the right-of-ways, our corridors, open up for curbside pickup or outside dining, ultimately, as we restart and reopen you know, the economy. So the streetscape is changing already in many cities. But what we argue for is we're going to need to go a lot further because small businesses are so fragile that we're going to have to come up with a common platform to share services or have certain kind of intermediaries, what we call regenerators, mm -hmm. buy services like deep cleaning for buildings or infrastructure connectivity and buy it in bulk so we can reduce price and have a communal, more of a communal approach to small business revival than every tub on its own bottom having to struggle to navigate what is a very complex financial system. And this is even more true in uh, main streets and corridors within low-income neighborhoods and moderate-income neighborhoods than downtowns themselves. The model does exist. It tends to exist more in Northern Europe than it does in the United States, but it can be adapted to the restart phase and ultimately the broader revival phase of, of this crisis. You, you touch on Northern Europe, and a lot of your research has been focused on uh, models outside the U.S., you want to tell us more about some of the models that you've studied and are there any lessons that you would bring to the U.S. from those models, specifically in Northern Europe or other locales that you've focused on? Yeah, I, think, I think there are many models that we can adapt. I mean, we have our own models. I mean, so it's not like everything is perfect outside the United States and somehow uh, we're <laughs> struggling to innovate. I, I think particularly in the innovation economy and particularly in that special sauce of the American economy, the interplay of advanced research and commercialization and startup and scale-ups and angel and seed funding and so forth and so on. You know, we are exceptional in our innovative practice and we're the envy of the world in many respects. But with regard to more publicly oriented interventions, I would say that uh, Northern Europe and some of the Asian countries have, have basically perfected a kind of public asset corporation. And what's going to happen in this crisis is there's going to be a large amount of real estate that basically transfers potentially into public ownership because particularly commercial real estate may fail, just like single-family homeownership was the distressed inventory of the last crisis in 2008-2009. So what they have in Hamburg and in Copenhagen and Sweden and Finland are public asset corporations. So these are essentially publicly owned but privately managed corporations which own a tremendous amount of assets, land, and buildings. And we have this in the U.S. to some extent. We have urban land banks, we have convention center authorities, stadia authorities, port authorities. It's very fragmented, however, in the U.S. In Northern Europe, it tends to be more unified as an ownership entity, and they tend to dispose of these properties in such a way 
that it has large, long-term sustainable effect, but also generates revenues for the public and public benefit for the long term. In many U.S. cities, when we tend to own property, it's almost like we have a fire sale mentality. Just sell it, get it off the books, close the budget gap of that year. In, in Europe, they tend to think about 30 or 50 year cycles where revenue, for example, in Copenhagen generated from the leasing of land along the waterfront, that those revenues are used to service the debt on their 21st century subway system. So it's that two plus two equal five effect that they're always focused on in some of these Nordic and Northern European countries that I think in this crisis, particularly since we built a lot of urban land banks post-2008, 2009, we have to adapt and adopt. Another pretty interesting and, I would say, radical intervention you've proposed that I want you to talk more on is kind of combines our discussion on small businesses as well as place and downtowns, and that is this idea of, as you call it, the Main Street Regenerator. What are, what are these Main Street Regenerators? What functions do they serve? And why the focus on, as you say, places rather than products? Well, I'm, I'm trying with a bunch of my colleagues to solve for what we see as a, as a coming problem with small business finance. So again, when we reopen uh, many of our main streets and central business districts and commercial corridors, we're going to find a whole bunch of small businesses, particularly the restaurants, the, the, you know, the face-to-face serving establishments having collapsed. They haven't just shuttered. They've, they've failed. They've gone out of business. Or if they remain in business, they're getting a very small portion of their revenue flow. And their credit may have been damaged. Uh, their incomes obviously have been diminished. So their ability to access traditional financial capital is going to be greatly circumscribed. And so what we're trying to basically say is we need to move towards a more communal collective model around place management, because these are very special places. Uh, Many of us, when we think of cities, will think of these particular main streets or portions of our downtown waterfronts and so forth. Many restaurants are also dependent upon large venues like our sports stadia or our theaters or museums, which have also been closed. So this is like a domino effect that has basically shattered so many of our centers of commerce and nodes of commerce. So what a regenerator would do, building on what we already have, we already have business improvement districts that might do clean and safe or branding and marketing. They might uh, purchase common services for all the businesses within their space. Um, And it could start with the deep cleaning that we're going to have to do in all these businesses as the crisis proceeds um, or persists. And it may also extend to back office, legal and accounting or financial navigation, technology interventions. So common services. Um, But also, we're going to have a lot of vacancies along our commercial corridors. So how do we go from vacancy to vibrancy? We think a regenerator could help populate those vacant buildings. Maybe there'll be community college functions or workforce development. We're going to have a surge in community college students during this crisis. We always do during recessions. Perhaps pop-up maker spaces, uh, shared kitchens, any number of possible 
inter, you know, innovations, which we already have, but we're talking about this at scale. And, and I think with regenerators, we might even see them providing rent stabilization by becoming a master tenant for whole portions of our downtowns or our main streets. So we have a bridge back to normalcy. Uh, the landlords stay constant, assuming they're quality owners. Uh, and we just don't see this domino effect of, of business, businesses collapsing, can't pay rent, landlords collapsing, on and on and on. I mean, small businesses are ecosystems in and of themselves with lenders and landlords and consumers and suppliers. And we need to be thinking about how to manage this in such a way uh, that the, the worst dystopian view of this big box retail comes in or predatory capital comes in is prevented and impeded. A Bloomberg article that was uh, published in May uh, reported that current projections are showing that across the country, state and municipal budget shortfalls are set to outpace those of even the Great Recession over the coming years. As director of the NOAC Metro Finance Lab in Philadelphia, you've done extensive research on public and municipal finance, so I want you to weigh in on this. Should we be bracing ourselves for a coming wave of municipal bankruptcies? Well, I think this is a great question, and, and we're living this out now in real time because Congress did not, in the last package they passed around small business relief and some investments in hospitals, did not take on state and local fiscal relief. So the next package, Congress needs to act. The House has proposed an $875 billion relief package for states and localities. There are bipartisan bills in the Senate at around the $500 billion level. You know, there's, there isn't a uniform effect in the United States because cities have different revenue sources. Uh, those that really depend on property taxes, that tends to be a more stable revenue source, particularly in these kind of downturns. The ones who are going to be hit and hit really hard are those that depend on sales taxes, wage taxes, income taxes uh, for a good portion of their revenue. So, you know, Philadelphia, for example, is uh, very dependent on wage taxes. And, and the next couple of years, you know, we're looking at $650 million shortfall. This, so this is substantial. And the Federal Reserve Bank has a small liquidity window that they've opened up, mostly to shore up the muni finance markets and, you know, help with buying out some short-term debt. But Congress has to act here. Congress needs to step in. That's the role of the federal government in these kinds of crises. You know, most of the time, the federal government just recedes into the background, mired in partisan rancor and ideological polarization. But when we have these kind of economic shocks or when you have a natural disaster in a particular portion of our country, you know, a hurricane or a flood, the federal government responds. Well, this is a hurricane happening everywhere without any time limit, any sense of when it's going to end. So the, the public sector, state and local, employs about 13% of the workforce in the United States. So you don't have to be a rocket science to figure out, if we don't shore this up, what are going to be the knock-on effects for private sector performance? I mean, this is not that complicated at the end of the day. So the next month is critical here for Congress to step up and do its responsibility 
Otherwise, they're going to commit malpractice and we're all going to be paying for it for several years. You contributed to a piece in Foreign Policy entitled How Life in Cities Will Look After the Coronavirus Pandemic, in which you pointed out how major national and world crises often galvanize the creation of new institutions designed to prevent similar occurrences in the future. Uh, And a couple of the examples you give in the article include the creation of the Department of Homeland Security after 9-11, the uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau after the 08 financial crisis. Just to close, what are some of the institutions that you foresee being established in the near future that will respond to the impact that the pandemic has had on our cities? So in the past, as you mentioned, we tended to have responded to these crises with federal agencies, either new or consolidated. So I guarantee you there will be a department of pandemics after this crisis. Um, but I, I, I think looking at the federal government only, I mean, we're a, we're a federalist system. Uh, we're a federal republic. Power is deeply distributed in the United States and decentralized, not just among layers of government, but sectors of society. And I think what this crisis has shown is that many of our institutions are not up to task. They don't have the capital or the capacity or community standing, frankly, to get stuff done. So I think as we go forward at the city level, across cities, federalist architecture, we need to be thinking about new kinds of institutions, again, drawing from other parts of the world. So just one example, in Sweden and in Denmark, their consortia of municipalities, we have a League of Cities, we have a Conference of Mayors, their consortia of municipalities actually collectively raise up their market power so that they just don't lobby for public policy. They actually negotiate with large financial institutions, which are global. And then frankly, that's how they've begun to be the leaders of clean energy finance and climate finance because they've created tools and products and norms and models that fit cities, all cities, both the Stockholms as well as those with much fewer population. So I think going forward, cities are obviously the engines of national economies uh, and they're the centers of global trade and investment, but they don't act to, to basically aggregate their market power so that they can go and negotiate and navigate with large tech companies, large financial institutions, and have their pensions basically invest in ways that have both economic return, but also sustainable return. So those kind of new uh, intercity, strong consortia, perhaps to to advance climate solutions, but also to, to deal with other kinds of infrastructure investments and so forth. I think that has to happen here. We do have the models outside the US. We can adapt to our culture, to the way we operate. So we have enormous advantages here, but we're we're, we're sort of lacking 21st century institutions and governance mechanisms. And I think that's what this crisis could, could ensue. Bruce Katz, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to City Speak with Max Masuda Farkas. City Speak is produced in partnership with Urbanized Media with music and audio production by Greg Gordon Smith. Tune in for our next episode. <laughs>